The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. Jeff has written books about Walter Payton, Brett Favre, the 1990s Dallas Cowboys, the 1986 Mets, the Showtime Lakers. His latest book is Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. If you are a football fan and you're older than about 40, you probably remember the USFL. If you're younger and don't remember, well, you should. So keep listening and we'll give you an education on this really fascinating spring football league that arose in the early 1980s. And it all came crashing down when it tried to challenge the NFL with an ill-advised move to the fall. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us now on Podcast One. Those fine folks have done a great job in increasing the listenership of this podcast. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of our coverage, and away we go. My guest this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is Jeff Perlman. His latest book is Football for a Buck, and it's about the USFL. And if you are about my age, 48, you probably have some really strong memories of the USFL. But it is an interesting subject for you to pick, Jeff, because most of your books have been about sort of very big figures, big teams, very popular. This is something that is a little bit niche. What brought you to this subject? I just uh, figured I was at a point in my career where I could try something different, and I, I always loved the USFL. I mean, it's a big part of what I sort of have done in my career is, you know, find things that I'm nostalgic about and then dig into them, and there's nothing I was more nostalgic about than the USFL. It's my favorite league as a kid. It was the topic of my... Uh, my senior year in high school, my English, my final English paper, my 40-page paper on the USFL. I just always loved the league. So I was told repeatedly nobody wants a USFL book. So I didn't do it for a long time. And finally, I just was like, to hell with it. I'm writing this book. And here we are. Let's get into the league a little bit. And I'm going to admit, it's college football season for me. I haven't had a chance to read your book. But I know a lot about the USFL, or at least a fair amount about the USFL. I will read your book because I've even tweeted at you. I'm actually pretty excited to read this book when I finally get a little time. What did the USFL sort of aspire to be at the beginning? Because we have a bunch of spring football leagues that are going to be popping up in the near future. One of them sort of, I think, aspires to be a complement to the NFL. I'm not really sure exactly what the XFL wants to be. We'll figure out more about that when it pops up. But back in 1983, I think it was, when the USFL started, what did it aspire to be? Well, it wanted to be a spring football, a professional spring football league that was really good and that ultimately one day would be vying for players with the NFL. You know, the original idea was spring football, 18-game season. We're going to have regional drafts. So we'll have a general draft, but then regional drafts. So presumably fans who watch their, you know, whatever, their high school and college kids play at Penn State and Pitt you know, and in Pennsylvania high schools before that would, would be able to see them with the Philadelphia Stars. Or if you're a Florida State fan, your quarterback is now playing for the Tampa Bay Bandits. And 
you know, the idea was we're going to give you each one or two marquee players, and then otherwise it's going to be sort of guys who are on the fringe of the NFL. And that was just the idea, slow and steady growth. It was a great idea that just kind of got screwed up over time. I, and again, I followed along on Twitter as you were sort of researching for this book, and it sounded like your interviews were in certainly in the hundreds. Did you get to like a thousand on these inter- interviews? How many people did you interview? No, I interviewed uh, about four hundred and thirty. Okay, which was uh, it was so fun. I mean, it was just fun because it's like you said when you started this. You said like I, you know, I feel like I know the US of L, and I felt like I knew the US of L. And then you start digging into it, and it was just the craziest league of all time. And it existed at a time when, just to be blunt, I mean, cocaine was huge, and players were drinking, and steroids were everywhere, and airline travel could still be a little shaky as far as turbulence. And I, it was just this sort of crazy. And the USFL, yeah, they, they got Steve Young and Jim Kelly and Herschel Walker, but they were also taking guys out of prison, guys who, you know, last leg guys who had flunked out of the NFL. So it was like this really interesting merging of a million different people and lifestyles in one football league. So you get a few superstars here and there, but the casting call for these teams must have been, you know, just comic book stuff, right? If you can delve into any of the, the sort of odd characters that were showing up to try out for the USFL, I can imagine some of the guys who didn't make it might have been as interesting as some of the guys who did. So the first team to really sort of go after players were the, the Chicago Blitz, and their uh, their coach was a legendary George Allen. And George Allen was basically, we're going to win, we're going to dominate, we're going to win, we're going to where no stone goes unturned. So they auditioned more than three thousand football players, and I actually got a bunch of their old files, and there are all these letters from, you know, my favorite is probably there was a, a defensive back from Georgetown College in Kentucky, and he wrote. I really think you should give me a chance. My eight interceptions last season, and he misspelled interceptions with an E. So he my eight interceptions. And they would do these things. The Blitz did these things where they would have these giant tryout camps, and they'd give you a free T-shirt for coming out. And they would have hundreds and hundreds of people. And they had this one at Soldier Field one day where Bruce Allen, the general manager, was sitting in the stands. And if a player was impressive to the coaches, they'd send him up to Bruce Allen, and he would sign him to a contract. And there was one guy named Albert C. Lynch. He was a five foot eight linebacker who had never played football anywhere. And he notices the system. He notices that every now and then the good players are going up into the stands and they come away with a contract. So he decides after his crappy workout, he walks up into the stands and he signs a contract. And later on, Bruce Allen is going over the contracts with the coaches. And the coaches are like, why did you sign Albert C. Lynch? It's like, I didn't sign Albert C. Lynch. Of course you did. Here's the contract. Well, he, you sent him to me. I didn't send him to you. And it was just a guy who figured out the system. And there were just a million. I mean, the Boston Breakers signed uh, Dave Remington. They agreed to, to uh, they agreed to a deal with Dave Remington, the Outland Trophy winner out of yeah, Nebraska. Great, great player. And great player. And they, um, it's a very exciting day in the early early edition of the Boston Breakers. And they fly him to Boston for a press conference and to sign his deal. And they go to Logan Airport to greet him, and he's not there. And it turns out someone was playing a prank on them and was pretending to be Dave Remington. And Dave Remington had no idea any of this was even going on. And the Breakers didn't double-check. So they, they had to hold their press conference and announce that they'd been fooled by a fake Dave Remington. 
there are some people involved in this who might be looking at it like, well, this is going to be a little weird. But there also might be the coaches like a George Allen who's thinking like, no, 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 this is 100% serious. So for the guys like a George Allen or for some of the people who may have walked into this thing thinking like this could be a little like the NFL, what were those people thinking as you're sort of ragtag putting along these teams and you get hoaxes and things like that? Were anybody like, this is ridiculous? And were there others who were like, hey, man, this is just what we signed up for? I think it was a mix, but I think even the ridiculousness was, I guess, tolerated or accepted because the football was actually really good. It wasn't like the XFL. You know, I hate when people compare it to the XFL. Mm-hmm. Um, the USFL had legit talent up and down the rosters, and there were a lot of guys. You know, the first season was really emerging of um, a lot of sort of, you know, it was like the wide receiver would run a four six forty instead of a four four, mm-hmm. or the offensive lineman who maybe was 275 pounds instead of 290 or the quarterback who spent a year and a half backing up Craig Morton with the Denver Broncos, and now he was getting his chance. There's like a lot of those guys. So they were not bad football players. They just weren't marquee football players. So despite the, the weirdness and the, the craziness and the Oakland Invaders on one of their early days of camp, they had a team Bible study. And that night, the leader of the team Bible study was caught having sex on the railing of the hotel and, and was kicked with a, with a prostitute. Like, that kind of crazy weird stuff happened all the time. <laughs> right. But the football was just good enough, and the potential and the excitement of something new was just good enough that people stuck with it. Why did the good players start getting it? Was it simply money? You had some, and, th- and this is the funny thing about the XFL from my perspective, and this is just my personal opinion of it. So I thought it was cool, the USFL. But I also, as an NFL fan, like when I'm 13 years old, was sort of disappointed when some of the really good players went there because I was like, oh, man, I want to see Herschel in the NFL. I want to see Steve Young and Jim Kelly in the NFL. Obviously, the league was offering some monumental contracts. But what were some of the good players thinking when they were walking into these situations? Like, where did they find this this offensive tackle that's supposed to be blocking for me? Was there any kind of weirdness or disconnect between the good players and the rest of the lot? Not really, because again, like, Steve Young is a good example. Steve Young was coming out of BYU in 84. He would have been the number one pick by the Cincinnati Bengals. He did not want to go to Cincinnati, Ohio and play football. Mm-hmm. The USFL comes along and says, we'll put you where you want to go. He said, well, I want to go, if I go anywhere, it'd be California, Los Angeles. The LA Express head coach is John Hadel, who is a legendary quarterback. Mm-hmm. Their offensive coordinator was Sid Gilman, who is the godfather of the passing game, the modern passing game. It was a great chance for Steve Young. Jim Kelly, coming out of Miami, he said, he said in the lead-up, I will not go to the Buffalo Bills. Don't draft me. Well, the Bills draft him, and he, he's resigned. This is a true story. He's resigned to go to Buffalo. He actually, they go up to Bills, uh, to the Bills facility, Jim Kelly and his agent, and uh, Bruce Allen, again, the GM of the Chicago Blitz, finds out that Jim Kelly is there glumly negotiating a contract. And Bruce Allen calls the Blitz and pretends to be Jim Kelly's agent's brother and says, we have a family emergency. Can you put him on the line? And he gets Kelly's agent on the phone, and he says, "Um, listen, we know Jim doesn't want to play in Buffalo, and you know it. Get out of there, make some excuse, and I promise you we'll make him happy. And they let Jim Kelly left, and they said, where do you want to play? And he said, I would play in Houston, and he became a Houston gambler. So they gave these guys a lot of money and also opportunities to sort of go where they want to go and start their career with pretty good personnel. Not NFL caliber, but 
I don't think the jump from the Buffalo Bills to the Houston Gamblers at that point in time was very large. What were the franchises that were best run, and what were some of the ones where it was a little more touch-and-go, so to speak? Right. Well, the Philadelphia Stars were by far, they were the, uh, using 80s terms, they were the 49ers of the 80s mm-hmm. in the USFL. They, um, their GM was Carl Peterson, who came from the Eagles. Their coach was Jim Mora, very disciplined. The best Philadelphia Stars sort of story that exemplifies them is um, Sam Ritigliano, the, the coach of the Cleveland Browns at the time, calls Carl Peterson one day and he says, listen, we cut a linebacker and I think you guys should sign him. But he's five foot nine, and you're going to see him and you're not going to want him. And Peterson said, I'm not, there's no way we can sign a 5'9 middle linebacker. And Ritigliano was like, listen, see him in pads, and I really think you'll change your mind. Just give him a shot. Well, that guy wound up being Sam Mills, who went on to be one of the great middle linebackers in NFL history. They were really smart and cagey about who they were bringing in. Like, they, Calvin Bryan out of North Carolina was their star halfback. Irv Eatman, the great offensive lineman from UCLA, signed with them. But they weren't going crazy on signing too many big-name guys. and They were just really well-run. And then... Not that far away, you have the Washington Federals, who they signed as their quarterback, Joe Gilliam, who had been uh, Terry Bradshaw's backup in Pittsburgh. And Joe Gilliam at the time was addicted to Coke and was living in a Washington, D.C. halfway house while playing quarterback for the Federals. So some teams just signed anyone. Other teams were very careful and meticulous. As you were going about to research and track some of these people down, because that's, the, the I imagine, part of the, first of all, part of the really hard work of doing a book like this, but also, I imagine, some of the fun. Give me, like, one of your, one or two of your most interesting tracking this guy down or tracking this woman. I assume you probably talked to some cheerleaders and people in front offices, mm-hmm. too. What were the most interesting tracking people down stories? Well, I think this book gave me the best track down story in the history of humanity, which is... <laughs> There was a defensive lineman named Greg Fields. His nickname was Big Taper. And Greg Fields was, um, he played for the Baltimore Colts in 1979 as a rookie out of Grambling, was cut after the season, signed with the Atlanta Falcons, and they cut him in training camp. When they cut him in training camp, he refused to leave. He actually refused to leave, and they had to bring in an armed security guard to get him out of camp. He was basically, Greg, we're cutting you. I'm not leaving. Greg, we have a guy with a gun. All right, maybe I'll leave. And he goes to the LA Express. And in 1984, he's cut, and he punches the coach in the face and then starts calling in death threats to the team. And they end up hiring Liberace's bodyguard away from Liberace to protect the coach of the LA Express because Greg Fields is threatening to kill him. Then Greg Fields, because the U.S. of L is the U.S. of L, is signed as a free agent by the San Antonio Gunslingers. And when they stop paying their players in 85, he follows the owner of the team home one day with a baseball bat and leaves with $17,000 in cash. And I desperately <laughs> needed to find this guy. But no one knew where he was. But I got to, I got two addresses, and I didn't know if they were good or not. They were both in San Francisco, so I took my son on a road trip, my nine-year-old son, to find the homicidal defensive lineman, Greg Fields. And, uh, Quality parenting there, Jeff. That's what I do. And uh, <laughs> it was very funny. We started in uh, – the first address was in a really bad area of San Francisco, and he wasn't there. The second address was in the projects of San Francisco. His sister answered the door. She said, I don't really talk to Greg that much, but I'll try to get him your number. Fast forward the next day, me, Greg Fields, and my nine-year-old son Emmett are sitting in a food court in Sacramento, California, eating Cold Stone Creamery with Greg Fields. <laughs> well, first of all, I would actually think that maybe your nine-year-old's a good buffer because you're thinking like, well, you know, he may be homicidal, but it's a kid, right? He's not going yeah, like, to do anything in front of my kid. So what was he, I mean, what was he like? He was kind of battered by football and sort of... Yeah. But he was good and nice and friendly and talked about how crazy the USFL was and how crazy he was in the USFL. <laughs> you know, 
It was good. What was maybe the most interesting person that you talked to for this buck who wasn't a player? Give me a, somebody who had an insight to this league who was maybe a little off the beaten path, but had a perspective on this league that was like you know pretty unique. If you talk about just like you, kind of a quirky find, also like um, the San Antonio Gunslingers, they were the the most dysfunctional sports team that's ever existed. Okay, and um, truly the most dysfunctional sports team that's ever existed in a million different ways. And one thing they did was the owner of the team was this guy Clint Mangus, and he was crazy, and he was very dissatisfied. Excuse me, with the punting game, and he had a uh, he owned a ranch, and he was convinced that his ranch hand would be a better punter than the punter they had. So his branch hand was named Buddy Roberts. And he had played high school football like 17 years earlier in Freer, Texas. But that was the last time he played football. And Clint Manger signed him to be the punter of the, of the San Antonio Gunslingers. <laughs> and he shows up and he's absolutely a joke. He's terrible. They never let him punt in a real game. He doesn't know how to punt a football more than 20 yards. And I really wanted to find him. I could not find him, but I found his daughter. He died, but I found his daughter. And... His daughter is just awesome, and she, she she viewed it as like this great moment in his life, like this this really unique and wonderful moment where her dad, a ranch hand from Freer, Texas, was a, a punter in the professional football league. And I just thought that was really cool and weird at the same time. Very cool, very weird. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. I'm talking with Jeff Perlman about his book, Football for a Buck. It's about the USFL. It, it, it's got a zillion great stories in here. But we'll be back in a second on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back with Jeff Perlman, author, writer. Football for a Buck is the book. It's about the USFL. We've been getting into some really interesting stories about the characters of this league that was around for three years. And that was the other thing that surprised me. When I sort of went back, I think maybe when you're young, time moves a little more slowly. I'm thinking the USFL had like a four, five, maybe a six-year run. And then I kind of look back. I'm like, wow, three years and done. Now, they had sort of an ill advised expansion i think in the second year second or third year but what were the things that sort of went right and i know ultimately what went wrong and we'll get into that but what were some of the things that sort of went right and went wrong those first couple of years when they were sort of feeling out what they wanted to be i mean the good is they went into some really smart markets some really smart markets. they were in jacksonville way before the jaguars came along and that was their most successful franchise attendance wise was the jacksonville bulls they went into Memphis way before the Titans came along, and uh, the Showbooks were a very successful franchise. They went to Birmingham and did great. I'm, I'm still convinced a, a pro football team would do well in Birmingham. You could make the argument that this is both good and bad, but they signed three straight Heisman Trophy winners out of college, Herschel Walker, Mike Rozier, uh, and Doug Flutie, mm-hmm. which was amazing. They, they, if, you, if you're an NFL player now, you should still be thankful for the USFL because salary skyrocketed during that period because suddenly the NFL had competition. A guy like Doug Williams, who was a quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, felt like he was hostage to the Buccaneers because the NFL free agent system back then was a joke. Uh, Doug Williams at the time, I think, was the 48th highest paid quarterback in football, even though he was a starter. So when the Oklahoma Outlaws came along and made him the fifth highest paid quarterback, that was a very easy decision. The things they did wrong, they, they expanded, as you said, they expanded way. It's, it's crack insane to go from 12 teams to 18 after one season and <laughs> they went to markets that made no sense they went to san antonio they went to tulsa um they did the craziest trade in the history of organized you know existence he said the uh, chicago blitz and the arizona wranglers 
were traded for one another. The two teams were actually traded for each other because the owner of the Chicago Blitz lived in Arizona and didn't like making the three-hour flight a couple times a year to go to Chicago for games. So their solution was we're just going to trade the franchises for each other. So all the Blitz players became the Wranglers. All the Wranglers players became the Blitz. Then the Blitz hired Marv Levy as their head coach but forgot to tell him that the teams were traded for each other. So he thinks he's taking over this really good team because the Blitz were great in 83. Instead, he's getting the crappy 4-14 four and 14 Wranglers of 1983. They've spent way too much money too quickly. Um, some of the markets were preposterously dumb. You know, but the games, the uniforms are great. The games are entertaining. I thought it was fantastic. I did. Let me ask you about a couple of specific players here. And I don't know if you had a chance to talk to Herschel about his decision because, I mean, to me, that might have been, it could have been Steve Young. There, obviously, there were some really great players in that league. But when Herschel goes to the Generals, Herschel Walker goes to the Generals, that was a huge deal, not just because it was Herschel Walker, who may have been one of the great college football players of all time, but he was also an underclassman. And I don't know if he was the yep. first underclassman to do that, but that was a major shift in what, what football was to that point. Yeah, because the NFL wouldn't take him. Right. And he was, um, it was like a really interesting example. It kind of got to you what he did. I mean, he was a kid from tiny Wrightsville, Georgia. He came from a dirt poor family. And he had just won the national, he had won the national championship already. He won the Heisman Trophy. And there came a point where he's like, why am I doing this? I want to, I want I need to make money for my family. And the NFL wouldn't touch him. So his, quote-unquote agent representative, called the USFL and said, Herschel wants to join you guys. He wants to come out. And USFL at first was very reluctant, uh, number one, because it just wasn't done. And they were. it was also new. A lot of what they were doing was based off of what the NFL did. So the idea, uh, we're going to take an underclassman, no. And then the more they thought about it, I mean, Herschel Walker, you remember this. It's hard to even explain to young people now what Herschel Walker was. Because this was not a time when you saw a million games. You could see any game you wanted at any time. And this wasn't what you hear about where you get to see all these. You know, nowadays you get to see the top 20 players in the country at some point if you want to. Well, back then, Herschel Walker was a singular force. Where if you were living in New York or L.A. or Georgia, you knew Herschel Walker. And he was the best player in college football and he was larger than life. So his going to the USFL was a nuclear explosion in football. And the first time the NFL... I think had an inkling that this wasn't a joke. You think that worried the NFL? Now all of a sudden, hey, because uh, because I think not long after that, the NFL li- like literally changed its rules and said, okay, we'll start dealing with juniors. We'll start allowing these guys to be drafted. That's a few things. The USFL had a draft right before Herschel Walker kind of signed, and among the guys who were drafted and signed with the USFL were Craig James out of SMU, mm-hmm. uh, Reggie Collier out of Southern Miss, Tim Spencer out of Ohio State. Uh, these are big-name David Greenwood out of Wisconsin. These are big-name college guys who are going to be first-round picks in the NFL draft. So you're the U.S. You're the NFL, and, and you hear about the USFL, and you're thinking, oh, how quaint. And then you hear, oh, they got a TV deal with ABC and ESPN. And you're thinking, oh, okay, well, it's still kind of quaint. It's a spring. And then they, they have their draft, and the first pick is Dan Marino. And you're thinking, yeah, Dan Marino's not signing with the USFL. We know that. But then they start signing guys. And then, so when they get when they get those guys, I mean, Craig James was a huge college star back then at SMU with Eric Dickerson. Sure, you know, Tim Spencer was a great college running back who would have been a first round. Like these are big name guys. Irv Eben at UCLA was a star in college. So 
when these guys start going to the NF to the USFL, and then when they get Herschel, I mean, it's on. The NFL knows there's something going on here. So we get to the point where things start to go awry, and it involves the president of the United States, right? He buys the New York, New Jersey generals. I think they were actually by that time the New, weren't they like New York, New Jersey, right? Didn't they, weren't they using no, both? Or they they just, were always actually they were always New Jersey. They were always New yeah, Jersey. In his opening press conference, he mistakenly referred to them as the New York, New Jersey Generals, but they were not. There's one more name. I got it. Before we start to get to Trump and the downfall of the league, I, I got to mm-hmm. ask you because because this is a college football podcast. Marcus Dupree is is a legend oh, yeah. in college football, high school football. I lived in Mississippi for a few years. I became like obsessed with the guy and his life and and everything about him. So he at one point also be, decides, you know what? I've had enough of college. I'm going to try the USFL. It didn't work out like Herschel, but what was Marcus Dupree's experience in the USFL like? Well, you know, he had that brief period run at Oklahoma, and then he went right. to Southern Miss and never played. Mm-hmm. And the New Orleans Breakers come along. They'd moved from Boston to New Orleans, and they needed a star. And Marcus Dupree was from Philadelphia, Mississippi, just down the road. Mm-hmm. And they sign him. It's actually funny. They have this huge sort of media event. And... The uh, Steve Weaver was the name. What was that? I think it was Steve Weaver was the director of media relations and uh, of uh, publicity for the Breakers. And they're going to do this big press conference. And Steve sees a guy with a horse and carriage driving by in New Orleans, and he pays him money to bring Marcus Dupree and his family up this hill to the press conference to kind of present this regal sort of thing. And Dupree and his family get on the horse on the carriage, and the horse starts buckling. Because they're too heavy. And, he, and so a bunch of the breakers' employees are getting behind the horse and the carriage, pushing it up the hill to make sure. Mar- it was like this preposterous scene that could only happen in the USFL. And, you know, Dupree shows up. He's super immature. I think he was only 20. Um, he's kind of cocky. He, buy, he buys a motorcycle, then realizes it's in his contract. He can't have a motorcycle. And, um, his first game as a breaker, he jogs out to the field in New Orleans or standing ovation, and he scores on two touchdown runs of like one yard and one yard. The next year they move to Portland, he blows out his knee, and that's the end of his story in the USFL. It was a very quick, very sort of a lot of hype and very few results story for Marcus Dupree. So Donald Trump buys into the league and starts – was it was – it... Only him? I mean, how much was he responsible for the uh, planting the seed and pushing the idea of we need to compete with the NFL, we need to move this to the fall? Was there any other talk within the league of that going on? No, zero. Not until he came along. So he basically came along. I, I know this kind of conversation turned some people off, but it would, would, to be totally honest about it, it was all sort of a con for him. It really was. He, uh, he wanted an NFL team desperately. Mm-hmm. He tried buying the Baltimore Colts and failed. So he buys into the USFL, and he sees USFL. The Jets have just moved to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. He sees this big opening in New York City, and he thinks, I'm going to buy a USFL team. Uh, we're going to be really good. And then we're, some one way or another, the NFL is going to take my team or give me another team that I'm going to have in New York. So he gets the Generals. He buys them from Walter Duncan, the former owner of the Generals, leading up to the 84 season. And not long after that, he has a meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, at a suite in the Pierre Hotel in New York City that uh, he pays for, Trump pays for and he says to Roselle, I, what do I need to do to get in the NFL? I don't want to be in the USFL. I want to be in the NFL. And Roselle doesn't trust him, has never trusted him, knows him through New York dealings, and says to him, as long as I or my heirs are involved in the NFL, you will never have a franchise in this league. And Trump, 
I always say, say what you want about him. The guy freaking charges ahead. And he continued to believe we need to go head-to-head with the NFL because then we will be absorbed. And they will be forced to, uh, to take us into a merger or we'll sue them, we'll win the lawsuit, and we'll, we'll absorb. So he led this whole hard, fran- you know, frantic push to fall. He lied to the other owners about the great TV deals that he was hearing about for fall. Uh, the networks had no interest in the US of as a fall entity. He pushed and prodded and prodded and pushed and beat down on people. And eventually he sort of led this lawsuit against the NFL that proved to be a complete total disaster and the death of the league. Right, because they win the lawsuit, and going back to the title, football for a buck, they're awarded $1. $1. Yeah, because it, what the jury decided was, basically what Trump was arguing, and he was correct, is that the NFL was, a, was monopolizing Paul TV, and the USFL didn't have a chance because there was this monopoly. But the jury agreed. They said, you're right, there is a monopoly, the NFL has it. But the biggest problem here is you guys. You can't get out of your own way. You keep screwing up. The USFL paid $600,000 for a consulting group to, to give them to do a huge study on whether they should move to fall. The consulting group comes back and says, don't move to fall. It's a huge mistake. In that meeting, Trump is the first one to stand up. He says, this is all BS. You guys don't know what you're talking about. So the jury knew about all this. They knew that fall was a bad idea. They knew the USFL was advised against doing it. So, again, the NFL, yeah, the NFL colluded, but it was USFL's fault. Did you have people who told you that this would have been fine? We could have gone on for years and years if we didn't do this, if we didn't try getting into the uh, getting into fall? I got a text from Steve Young like three weeks ago. We were talking about something with the USFL, and he said that league should still be around as a spring football league. I don't know if it would still be around, but it certainly would have lasted longer People get confused. It drives me crazy. Some people have revisionist history about the USFL, and they'll be like, no, Trump didn't kill it. We were having trouble anyway. You knew you were going to have trouble. There was an upstart spring football league. The David Dixon, the founder, told you there would be, tr- there would be tough times. You're going to lose money. It's hard up front. But you got to stay the course with this thing. And they just got panicky and stupid. And they follow this guy who came along and made all these promises that he couldn't keep. I think that's probably the most frustrating thing about it is that maybe it wouldn't have had a, a very long history, but it could have done a little more than it did. You know, there's one other point where I'm going to throw this at you. I know you're not a big fan of college sports, generally speaking. I think I'm reading that right because I think I love my uh, I love my Delaware blue hands. There you go. OK, but but I, but listen, I mean, I think we all know college sports has a lot of issues, you know, as far as. You know, you you, got, you kind of have to make a deal with the devil to a certain degree to get into college sports because of the structure of these kids not really getting not getting paid to uh, fuel a multi-billion dollar business. However, one of the things I've always felt like is a problem for college sports, for college football in particular, but not necessarily something they can control is the need for like another option. Right. I don't have to go play college football to right. be a professional football player. As you research the NFL, and I'm just asking for your opinion on this, do you think that these spring leagues that are – if something could develop into another place where kids can play football, maybe aspire to be in the NFL, do you think that would help what we have now with college football and the, and basically the whole developmental system that has to sort of force kids to go to college to play in the NFL? That's a great – a great question. I mean, the one thing I keep thinking about, and I, I only that, ask you, Jeff, because it became again because the yeah. USFL, I think, could could have been that to a certain degree. It seemed to aspire to be that. 
I get, you know, the one thing I, I but maybe college doesn't answer this either is the idea of you to have a professional league and you could have a bunch of 18 year, 19 year old kids playing professional football when their bodies aren't fully developed. Yeah. It seems a little dicey. And, um, the other thing is, I just, I know, I wish more parents thought about this because they don't. I mean, the average football career is what, two and a half years? Yeah. And okay. I just, man, to, to, to skip over college altogether, I don't know. It, I, it almost feels, it seems like the one benefit of college football in a lot of ways is that these kids are exposed to education and maybe a lot of them, even if they don't complete their educations now, at least learn the value of it and go back later. So I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't thought about it enough to give a great answer. That's okay. Yeah, and you know, and that's a good point. And and I think there is some. I think as much as people bash college football, there is probably some value. There's definitely some value sure. to sort of funneling these athletes into a, an academic setting. Either a, they're sort of forced to get an, a, a diploma. Uh, or B, they're sort of exposed to education and college, which ends up exposing you to other avenues which you can better your life. Like, listen, if you're an Ohio State football player, you always have that on your resume, and that could lead and that could open a whole bunch of doors. So, I don't think people who really are the true believers about college football want to frame it that way. But that is a benefit of college football. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. Uh, I agree with that 100. percent And if you instead of going to let's say Ohio State for two years. You're um, a semi-pro. Yeah, yeah. You're going to play for the Omaha Roughnecks. Right. Like it's not. It's just not. What's the benefit there? So two years later, you're left with no education, no basis of education, and two years of crappy football. Let me wrap up USFL and let you go, Jeff, because this has been great, and I really appreciate. it. I hope the book does great, and I promise I'm going to read it in the off season, or if, next time I take a few flights, maybe okay. I'll do it. When people look back on the league, give me maybe a story or someone who looks back and says, you know, getting back to what we said before about how it could have been so much better, got a foothold and lasted a lot longer. Is there somebody who came to you with a story that sort of laid out how it could have and how, like what the alternative? path was for the USFL and why that alternative path was so bright? Oh, I mean, a million different guys from the league have okay. this sort of idea that I agree with, which is in 1987, you had the uh, NFL player strike and oh, wow. they were using replacement players and everything was a mess and it was anarchy. I mean, I had a long talk with Jerry Argovitz, who was the owner of the Houston Gamblers, who said, if we had only held on two years longer. It was. It was about we a year and had, a half later, right? We, from the yeah. USFL folding to the strike. I think it was about a year and a we, half, right? Yeah. We would have had this massive influx of guys coming to our league, and we, there would have been football anarchy. And I really think, I really do, I think at that point in time, the NFL would have had to take a hard look at adding Jacksonville, adding Memphis. The Stars had moved to Baltimore and the Colts were gone. The Invaders were in Oakland. The Stallions were in Birmingham. I just think there were markets that the NFL would have probably thought, you know what, let's just end the USFL. Let's just agree to this and kind of move on. And I think if the USFL had just waited longer and hadn't followed Donald Trump, I think a lot of his teams would have wound up in the NFL. I really do. Uh, what's your next book? Have you picked, a pa- picked another one yet? I'm doing an NBA book, but I'm too paranoid to tell you the subject yet. That's I'm always fine. nervous. <laughs> That's fine. Jeff yeah. Perlman, author of Football for a Buck. It's about the USFL. Thanks so much for coming on and and doing this. I really enjoyed it, and I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. And now, three and out. And since we didn't cover much actual college football this week, talking with Jeff Perlman, 
This three and out will also double as a short weekend preview. First down, number two Georgia faces its biggest test of the season when it goes to number 13 LSU on Saturday. I've been suspicious and a little skeptical of LSU's ability to maintain its winning ways all season, so last week's loss in Gainesville was not surprising. There's still a lot that the Tigers don't do particularly well, especially on offense, while Georgia has no glaring weaknesses. I think playing in Death Valley will be a good test, but ultimately the Bulldogs pull away unless they feed LSU some turnover-related points. Second down, weird spot for the Pac-12. Number 7, Washington, is at number 17, Oregon. It promises to be a pretty entertaining game with Justin Herbert, the great quarterback for the Ducks, facing a really tough Huskies defense. Weird, though, for the Pac-12 because of this. It would probably be bad for the conference if Oregon won. As we've discussed, the Ducks got stuck with an incredibly weak non-conference schedule this season. Even at 12-1, it could be difficult for Oregon to squeeze its way into the playoff. Washington may have that loss to Auburn on its resume, but at least it still looks like a credible loss, though Auburn is doing its best to hurt the Huskies with its recent performances. Washington at 12-1 and is probably the Pac-12's best playoff bet, and it could use Oregon as a springboard more effectively than vice versa. Third down, the Harbaugh haters are primed to pounce again this weekend. Number 12, Michigan hosts number 15, Wisconsin. Another chance for the Wolverines to beat a ranked team and start to be taken seriously. Michigan has mostly played well since leaving South Bend with a loss on opening weekend. There will be bigger tests for the Wolverines down the road, especially against Penn State and Ohio State. Uh, Michigan State always gives Michigan its best shot. Uh, The Wolverines are still positioned to be a factor in the playoff race, but Saturday night's game against the Badgers is basically a playoff eliminator with both teams having already lost the game. Wisconsin's defense has been unusually wonky so far this season. I think Michigan comes away with a victory, and at least for a little while, it keeps the Harbaugh haters at bay. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find us on Podcast One and on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening. And come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.